Good morning, Bethel. All right, well, we are in the middle of a series called Faith in the Local Church. Um, we started it last week, and the title has a double meaning. Um, what are we supposed to believe about the local church? Do we really believe, have faith, in what God says about what the church is, what it's supposed to be like? Um, so do we, do we really believe in the church? Do we have convictions about the local church, um, about what God says it is and how it's supposed to operate? And then if we believe those things, if we have those convictions, what does that faith look like as it gets fleshed out in our lives as we do life together as a, as a church? So do you see the dual meaning? That's... Um, the reason for the title. So last week we looked at one of the metaphors in the Bible. Um, it talks about the nature of the church, that we are Christ's body. So he's the head, we are the body. We're like members, parts of the body. Um, eyes and hands and feet and all of that from 1 Corinthians 12. And through this series we're going to look at some of those main metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church, the people of God. So this morning... We're going to look at the church as a family. So we, if we are Christians, we are God's family. So before we pray in just a minute for God's um, blessing and help, I want you to just stop and think with me a little bit. Um, what is the meaning of the family or of family? Why did God create the family? Why did he create it this way? And, and there's probably lots of answers to that question. But certainly, part of the answer, part of the central portion of the answer is that God made the family for self-revelatory reasons. He wanted to actually tell us more about his nature by making things on earth that reflect on who he is and what he's like. This is not unique to family, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting. It's also the case in creation. So why did God make rocks? Have you ever thought about that? Why did he make them hard and solid, especially big ones when you stand on them? It's very stable and secure. Why did God make rocks? so that he could give you a feel of what it's like to have him as your foundation. He is our rock and our refuge. Why did he make caves? To tell us a little bit more about himself. Okay? Why did he invest water with so much power? So that we would have flood as a metaphor of judgment and also love and grace. Now, all of these things can be co-opted by the fall, all of these things that God has created, and they can serve deadly purposes. Okay? We all have felt this one way or another. Maybe many of you have felt the deadly effects of family. Maybe family does not have happy connotations in your life. So, 
God made fathers to reflect his character and relationship to us. But maybe for many of you, father makes you want to shiver. It's a really bad word, bad connotations. Marriage, for some of you, lots of bad connotations. Divorce is normal. Happily married is odd. Okay, so certainly the things that God invests his character, he wants to reveal his character, his glory, he invests his his glory in those things, they are going to be a target for the evil one because God, the evil one wants to distort and twist the character of God. He wants to besmirch the, the glory of God. So we have to make sure that we don't just turn away from what these things are supposed to tell us because we have bad experiences with them. We need to say, God, what, what were you trying to tell us? What do you want us to see in making this thing called the family? What do you have to say about fatherhood? What do you have to say about motherhood? Believe it or not, there's motherhood um, metaphors in the Bible as well, both for God's nature with us and also the way that we should relate in the church, at least certain people to certain people. Marriage, why did you do that? Children, sonship, parenting, procreation, imitation, love, Okay, all of these things are embedded in this thing we call family. And so God has invested all of this glory, all of this, this is who I am, I want to show you, I want you to be able to experience it in the family. Okay, so family is precious. And the church, like we're going to see, is supposed to be a family. It's a family of families. It's also a family for the family-less Okay, so um, let's pray and ask for God's grace as we look to his word. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not rush past that address, at least not this week, and certainly not this morning. Would you please sensitize us and wake us to the wonder of being able to call you Father. Oh, I pray that your love that we've sung about would be seen and tasted in new and fresh and deeper ways this morning as we look at your word. By your spirit, would you please pour out your fatherly love into our hearts that is only ours in and through your son, your beloved son, who lived and died and rose again for us, that we could be reconciled to you, Father. I pray that we would really savor the grace of the gospel this morning. And we would see how you as Father, the relationship within the Trinity, and the relationship that we should have with you and with each other needs to be fleshed out in this church 
with one another, in our home groups, in our families, with people that are underfamilied or that have no family. Lord, would you please shape us that we would be the household of God that you want us to be, the family that you want us to be. Cause our love to abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that we may be able to discern what's best and live out this love one to another and have this beautiful corporate apologetic that people would know that we are your disciples, Lord Jesus, because of the love we have one for another. We need your help to not merely hear information this morning or see ink on a page, but to have a taste and for your love to be sweet on our tongue this morning, for us to be strengthened in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be able to comprehend how wide and long and high and deep and to know experientially your love that surpasses knowledge. So please, strengthen us by your Spirit. Speak to us and fill us and shape us that we might reflect as a church body the family love that you want us to shine with. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there is a outline in the bulletin, if that's helpful for you. Um, you can follow along that way. We're going to look at a number of texts this morning, so it may be helpful um, to have that in front of you. The first point is that the church is a family, okay? Um, I just want you to see that that's not my idea, that's God's idea, that it's very clearly stated um, in Scripture. So you can write these texts down, they're fairly short, I'll just have you turn to one of them. Um, So you can write down 2 Corinthians 6.18, the church is a family, it's God's family, so Paul is writing to the Corinthians and quoting what God said in the Old Testament, and he applies it to those, those Corinthians, and he says this, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, very clear. God's people, supposed to be his family. Okay? The fact that the church is a family is also evident when the people of God are referred to as the household of God. Okay, so flip to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Really clear example of this household language. So 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Very clear. One other one, you can just write the reference. Actually, two more. Just write the references down. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens or foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are a member of the household of God. And then one last one, Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we should be doing good to all people, regardless of what they believe, 
but especially we should do good to our family, okay, the household of faith. So the question with, you know, the title of the series, Faith in the Local Church, do you believe this? And I don't, I don't just mean mental assent. Is that faith really deeply held, and is it working itself out in our local church here? So let's ask ourselves that as we go along. Let's examine ourselves as we go along. Now, if the church is God's family, God's household, first question we should answer is, how do you become a part of God's family? And that's point number two, inclusion by adoption. Okay, so adoption is the only way into this family. It's the only way you can be a part of God's family. All the children in God's family are adopted children. All of them. We are, by nature, the Bible makes it clear, children of wrath. Okay, flip to Ephesians chapter 2. That's kind of a, a strange phrase, children of wrath. What does that mean? So flip over to Ephesians 2. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, and the, the text I'm directing us to is on page 976. So letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is all of us apart from Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's another interesting phrase. That means that they're characterized by disobedience to God and his will. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so this idea of children of wrath is a Hebrew expression. Okay, this will help get at what it means. Back in 2 Samuel 12, okay, when the, the prophet Nathan came to David to confront him about his adultery with Bathsheba and that murderous plan, you know, to put Uriah to death. He tells this little parable about a rich man who had plenty of sheep, and then there's this traveler that comes and visits, and rather than, you know, killing one of his sheep to feed the traveler, he takes the, the one sheep of this poor man who has one sheep, one little lamb, that's all he's got, and he loves this sheep and cares for it, and this wealthy guy just steals it and kills it to feed his guest. Remember how David responded? He got angry when Nathan's telling this story. That guy should die. So 2 Samuel 12, 5, when the prophet Nathan comes to David, um, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, which is the way it's translated. Well, in Hebrew, it's, he's a son of death. Okay? So a son of death is someone who deserves to die. A child of wrath is a child who deserves the wrath of God. Does that make sense? So God's wrath is not a hair-trigger temper. It's principled opposition to sin and rebellion and evil. It's because he's good that he hates sin and pours out his judgment on it. So we all are rebel children. 
Okay, the men are studying um, Isaiah on Friday mornings, and I think Vito is going to be starting up a group in the evenings here. Um, and we're going through the book of Isaiah, and this past week we started in the first five chapters, and right off the bat, Isaiah 1, if you want to flip back there to Isaiah chapter 1, keep you awake this morning by keeping your fingers moving, so Isaiah Chapter 1, verse 2, it's on page 566. Listen to the way that God addresses the people that are supposed to be his people. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They don't know me, their father. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Okay, so I just had this picture of what our sin is like. Have you ever seen a teenager who is just so hardened in their rebellion? They're insolent in the face of their father. And you know how ugly that is. That's us by nature. So how in the world do you become a part of this family, God's family, only by adoption, only by the grace of the gospel, won by Jesus on the cross. Okay, listen to how J.I. Packer says it in the classic book, Knowing God. Sonship to God is not, therefore, a universal status into which everyone enters by natural birth, but a supernatural gift which one receives through receiving Jesus. Then he quotes John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me, the Son. He goes on and says, The gift of sonship to God becomes ours not through being born, but through being born again. And then he quotes John 1. To all who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then one other quote here. This is what the Westminster Confession has to say about adoption. Now, this is dense language, but this is like really meaty, sweet stuff. So, so listen and hear how much they packed into this one paragraph. It's so rich. All those that are justified, okay, declared righteous in God's sight, pardoned in God's sight in the courtroom, only because of Jesus as our advocate. All those who are justified, God graciously grants in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, so it only comes through Christ, He grants to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have His name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, 
are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Yes! I mean, did you hear that? How much is in there? So if by God's grace you have seen, you've had your eyes open to your rebellion, your fist in his face, rebel child nature, and you've repented of it, I don't want to try to rule my own life. I just wrecked everything. That's what I will do. I'll deserve God's judgment. If you've turned from your old way of life, trusted in Jesus, running to him to be your Savior and your Lord, then you are a member of God's family. You have the eternal, omnipotent God as your Father. Do you realize how awesome a reality we just, our Father who art in heaven, do you realize how awesome a reality that is to be able to call the one and only sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God your Father personally? Do you ever just stop when you pray and wonder at how sweet and awesome that is? What is a father for? He wants us to call him Father. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven. What's a father for? Well, among other things, love. Father loves his children. He has their best interest in mind. He's committed to their well-being. Do you believe that about your father? If you're going to understand the church as God's family, you need to understand and believe that and have that deep down in your soul solid convictions. How about provision? Father is a provider. We're weak and needy as children. We can't provide for ourselves. We need his grace. We need his provision. Also, a father protects his children and provides this sense of security for his children. So all over the Bible, you have all of these promises of security that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. We're in this, the omnipotent right hand of the father. No one can snatch us out of his hand. So whatever the threats are, when you're walking through dangerous territory, you you can imagine the little kid walking through the dark street, but if dad's there holding the hand, everything's okay. Because, you know, at a certain age, dad is still, you know, strong in Superman. Well, God really is strong in Superman, even though that bubble gets popped eventually for kids and their dads. So protection, instruction, Children need to be taught, given wisdom. Oh, God is a teacher. He loves to teach us his ways so that we can walk in them. Fathers are for discipline. Children need to be corrected and trained. And he's so committed to that. He disciplines those he loves. And he scourges every son he accepts. Okay? Fathers are for modeling and example. Children need to see what it looks like to live wisely. And God just reveals himself left and right so that we can see his faithful, 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 reliable, trustworthy character and trust him. So, yes, we have God as our father. Okay, if you're in Christ today, no longer dead in your sins, you're born again. 
by the Spirit of God, you're alive in Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. Listen to Packer again in that same, it's a great chapter on sonship um, and knowing God. Recommend it to you. Adoption by its very nature is an act of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a, a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do so because you choose to, not because you're bound to. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. He had no duty to do so. He need not have done anything about our sins except punish us as we deserve, but he loved us. So he redeemed us, forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters, and gave himself to us as our father. Gave himself to us as our father. So anybody here have a great father growing up? You don't have to put your hands up. If you had this great father growing up that you look back with, of course he wasn't perfect, with, with such gratitude and appreciation and honor and respect, your father was, why does God make family? Why does he make rocks? Self-revelatory purposes. Your father was, or maybe if he's still alive, he is a little nightlight shining, I was going to say, with the gigawatt glory of your heavenly father, and then I didn't know what a gigawatt was, or is it a gigawatt? I'm not sure. I'm sure some one of you engineers is going to correct me on something here afterwards. That's okay. I welcome it. So I looked up what a gigawatt is. It's one billion watts. That's not enough. There's terawatts. That's one trillion watts. In 2006, the whole world used 16 terawatts. So it's a pretty big standard of measurement here. The average lightning strike peaks at one terawatt. But as you know, it doesn't last very long. Then there are petawatts. That's kind of like the mother of wattage, um, at least as far as the internet that I saw this morning. So a petawatt is one quadrillion watts. Guess what? Petawatts are like triple A batteries and a dollar store flashlight compared to God's power and glory. And he's your father. So if you had an awesome father... Praise God for the little nightlight, the little dollar store flashlight that he was. If you had a horrible father, you are not forever doomed to project that poor reflection of fatherhood back on your heavenly father. No, you are actually in a position to savor the perfect and loving and faithful fatherhood of God, maybe all the more. Do you believe that? Faith in the local church, the church is God's family. We are part of God's family, and it all starts with our relationship with the Father because He drew us into His family by grace. So God becomes our Father only by grace. Membership in His family comes only by adoption. If you are not sure today where you stand, Hear this, please hear this as God the Father's word to you today. And it's John 1. To all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, God gives the right to become children of God, children who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but children born of God. You can receive the Son, who lived and died for you so that you could be reconciled to the Father. 
and have God as your father. So God makes his family by his grace. You have a father. Now, tomorrow, when that anxiety-producing scenario arises, you'll still have a father, and you're going to have a father forever. How often is the Bible appeal to us not to be anxious or to trust and not fear? The motivation to prayer over and over and over again is the fatherly character of God. He's faithful. He's good. He's generous. He's loving. So don't be anxious about your life. The Father knows what you need. Or, I love this one, if you, if you and I, though we're evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give good things, give His Spirit to those who ask Him so we should ask and seek and knock and not throw up our hands? Do we believe this? Or do we act like cosmic orphans fending for ourselves? Or do we sometimes do stupid things like trying to buy our way into the billionaire's house as an orphan? That's nuts. Like works, righteousness, doing good things to try to gain God's favor is like, a, is like a, an orphan trying to buy his way into the billionaire's love. So again, do you believe this or I think all of us, we all kind of act like we don't have a father or a family oftentimes. We could, we could live like runaways sometimes. And so if there's any prodigals out there this morning, God wants you to come to your senses and come home to him and to your family. Point three, children and sons, rights and resemblance. So Inclusion in God's family is not by natural birth or by keeping some list of rules. It's by grace. It's by the grace of God through Christ. He adopts us into his family. Flip back to where Jay read um, in 1 John 3. Did you notice how many times children and brothers and sisters and all of that came up? Fatherhood. Listen to how John just gushes with praise and calls his readers to rejoice in this as well. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, we rebels, should be called children of God? And so we are. Okay, this is amazing. We're children. We're sons. So what does it mean to be God's children? A lot of what the Bible says about what it means could be summarized in terms of two R's, rights and resemblance. Okay, there's other ways we could unpack this, but for this morning, we're going to think about it in terms of rights and resemblance. First, let's think about rights of children. Would you turn back to Romans 8? Romans 8, verse 15. on page 944 if you're using the Pew Bible. So what does it mean to be God's children? What are some of the implications of this? Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, look at the rights, inheritance rights. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So sonship, to be God's children, means that we are His heirs. Just stop and think about that. What does God own? (laughs) What belongs to God? And so if we're His heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, our older brother, then what is ours, ultimately? Have you ever... Notice this in 1 Corinthians 3. You don't have to turn there just quick. Crazy things are said in the Bible. Do you read this book? Crazy things. 1 Corinthians 3.21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, (laughs) whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. How about the meek shall inherit the earth. How's that for a right and privilege? That, if, if, if we believe that, faith in the local church, faith in the fact that we are God's family, He's our Father, implications here, that just might free us from anxiety over loss, free us to give freely and lay up treasure in heaven where our treasure is. Okay, so here in Romans 8, sons and children are used pretty much interchangeably, though I wonder if Paul may have first used sons because of the inheritance that he was going to talk about, the heir language there, because in Jesus' day, it was usually the right of the son, especially the firstborn son. Jesus is obviously the firstborn son, and we're in him, so we share his inheritance, co-heirs with him. Um, But we are sons, those who receive the inheritance. Okay? But sons of God elsewhere in the Bible has a different nuance. Okay? Sometimes it speaks of family resemblance. Okay? So in our day and age, sons rarely do what their fathers do. Okay? Anybody here that is doing what your father did for a living? Wow. Okay? If we did this in a church 200 years ago, how many, how many arms do you think would have gone up? Okay, it's a very different day and age. Okay, in Jesus' day, if your father was a farmer, you would likely be a farmer. If your dad was a carpenter or a stonemason or whatever, you would likely do the same. So sons would apprentice under their dads and they learn by imitation. So that's the stuff underneath using son language rather than children language in texts like Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. If you're a peacemaker, look at, look at that. Look at that boy. <laughs> He's just like his dad. God is the, the epitome of peacemaking. He is the peacemaker. And so if we are peacemakers, we are imitating our Father. We learned it from Him. We shall be called sons of God. 
So there's a functional resemblance dynamic going on in this idea of being God's sons. And in this sense, women can be sons too. Get it? Um, Matthew 5.44 goes on to say, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, because he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Do you see that? So if we love everybody, even our enemies, we are acting like God. We are resembling him. It's a family resemblance. So there's a functional dynamic there as far as what's it mean to be God's kids, God's children, his sons. There's rights, amazing privileges and rights, and there is a resemblance responsibility and a call to change and reflect his character. So we start to see how all of this glorious vertical grace related to God through Christ, reconciled as his children, that vertical grace of adoption starts to work itself out horizontally into the family of God and into our human relationships outside the church as well. So in points four and five, we're going to see how all this adoptive family grace is intended to impact our relationships inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church is point four, outside the church is point five, okay? See where we're headed? So once again, faith in the local church, do you believe this about who we are as God's church, his family, and what is that faith going to look like as it's fleshed out in our church community and in our wider community? So point number four, first within, family relationships. There's lots of implications here um, as you look at what the Bible says about these things, but as we consider them, let's, let's just focus on a few. I think I have five, um, and they're relatively brief. Um, But as we consider these implications, remember first and foremost that we are God's children. Okay, we are part of his household. He created created it, and he rules it. He's the head of the house. God's the head of the household. So Bethel, and I say this to myself, honor your father. To the children, I say, honor your father. Children, obey your father in this sense here, in the ultimate sense. So let's keep that in mind as we hear the implications and how this should flesh itself out in our church family and outside our church family. So first implication, God the Father makes your family. You can pick your friends, but God picks your family, okay? So as we'll see, there's a call to love your brothers and sisters even if it's not always easy to like them. Okay, you remember that text that Jay read, 1 John 3, just a portion of it again, verse 14 to 18, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We should love them all indiscriminately. God makes our family. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. There's, again, family language there. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we are siblings, brothers and sisters. That's not just kind of like a cheesy Christian greeting. It is theological. It is so true that it's it's eternally true. 
We're brothers and sisters forever. So is our faith being fleshed out in and among those whom God has put us together with as brothers and sisters? Or are we closing our heart towards certain people for certain reasons? Remember Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to our spiritual family, to those who are of the household of faith. Second implication, spiritual blood is thicker than biological water. Or you could say, Blood, capital B, is thicker than blood, lowercase b. That makes sense? Who we are in Christ should be, must be, more definitive. Like our place in God's family actually takes priority even over who we are in our biological families. Okay? Jesus said very sobering things like, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Worthy of me. Okay, so sometimes following Jesus means a relational, biological family cost. And yet, despite that potential cost, Jesus says in Mark 10, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Okay, so this is your family. We are a family. And it has implications as far as our priorities are concerned and how we love one another, even if we don't click with one another as far as some of our natural affinities. Okay, the cross is what brings us together. We love because he first loved us. We can love each other over all kinds of strange lines. Like, who would put this crazy mix of people together? Only the gospel. Okay? This also has implications when someone claims to be a family member and they're stubbornly unrepentant, rebelling against their heavenly father. Okay? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12? Who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? Those who do the will of my father in heaven. So, so church discipline is an implication of this. If you claim the name of Christ and you claim to be a son of God and you are unrepentant, hard-hearted in your path of sin, then the church has to say, I'm sorry, but you can't drag the name of Jesus through the mud like that because blood is thicker than, you know, water of not rocking the boat relationally. Okay? Third implication. All the family members are important. Diversity is a beautiful thing. Kids need grandparents. Grandparents need kids. I think that's one of the wonderful things about our church is that we have such a great representation of the full age span and we have some degree of diversity of other sorts which we're thankful for. Okay, so it's a beautiful thing in a family where there's intergenerational love and love across all kinds of different typical borders and boundaries. All the family members are important. And it's a beautiful reflection of the unity that we have in Christ when we love each other and we don't let the world outside dictate where the unity comes from. 
Fourth implication, family meals are really important. <laughs> okay? We can unpack that a lot of ways, but the hospitality culture of, of the New Testament, um, of the whole Bible, really, should be part of this family dynamic, the way that we love one another, and also the Lord's table, okay? Ultimate family meal, right? Fifth implication, we are called to spiritual parenting. Paul talked about his ministry. He said, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He also said in the same book in 1 Thessalonians, you are witnesses and God also how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Or the way that the Apostle John spoke, he said, I have no greater joy than my children than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Paul, even though he had no biological kids and he was single, Timothy was a true child in the faith. Titus was a true child in the faith. He was a father to the Corinthians, okay, which leads to our last point. What does this faith look like in relation to those outside our family, God's family? Well, we have a family mission, all of us, and it's this, be fruitful and multiply. So just as God created Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, we are called as God's children to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. So step back now. Did you notice how much time we spent on the sweet grace and rights and privileges of being children of God? If we are not willingly, okay, think of a child obeying the father. How often does a child buck the father's command or begrudgingly obey the father's command rather than with a soft, submissive, good attitude heart obey the father? If we are not willingly living out our responsibilities within the family, if we're not willingly on mission to grow the family, draw people into this wonderful family? Isn't it because we've grown dull to the wonder, the glory, the joy, the grace of having God as our Father? Christ as our older brother? Of being adopted, we rebels, adopted into his family forever? and being heirs of all things, if we grow dull to those things, if we just are yawning in relation to those things, we are not going to be filled with the love of God to love our brothers and sisters and lay our lives down for them and to lay our lives down for the sake of the nations. So we will love as God's family because he first loved us. So we need to remember his love and drink in his love and know his love that surpasses knowledge day after day after day. We need to preach 1 John 3.16, like Jay said, to ourselves. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And ours is only the response to that, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So we need to drink in the love of the Father, remember that He first loved us, 
so that we are empowered by his love to love our brothers and to love the world. Let's pray. Father, please sensitize us to open our eyes to open our ears to the glories of your grace, the sweetness of adoption, the incredible privileges and securing promises of your love for us. And may that love so fill us that we willingly, eagerly aim to pursue loving one another. Like even tonight in our home groups or this afternoon or later this week in our home groups. Help us to love like this. Fill us with your love so that we love like this. And may we love the world because we want to be fruitful and multiply. We want other people to experience the sweet freedom and privilege and joy of being reconciled to you and having you as our Father and the church as our family, all because of Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray.